The Crips in this movie are portrayed as the victims. And they, near the beginning of the film, are shown trying to break into Derek's truck. And Derek comes out with his t-shirt off and he's got a swastika here. And he looks like Clint Eastwood in the first Dirty Harry film. You know, gun happy. He comes out with the gun and he's got this maniacal look on his face. And kaboom! Kaboom! And you can just see his eyes. He's maniacal. And at one point, one of the black youth that he shot... He goes up to and he grabs him and he brings him over to the sidewalk and he says, open your mouth. Come on, open your mouth on the sidewalk. So the, the black crip opens up his mouth and you can hear his teeth scraping against the sidewalk. So he's sitting there, he's been shot and he's got his mouth open on the sidewalk and you can hear the scraping of the teeth. You all know what's coming. Danny, his brothers come out of the house and even Danny, although he's a skinhead at that point as well, says in slow motion, it's really dramatized. No! And then the foot comes down, crunch! And of course the face sort of breaks in half. And then they show Derek, the police come along and he's told to turn around. You've probably seen the commercial for it where he turns around slowly and he's got this look of absolute delight on his face. Yeah, I killed a black person. And he puts his arms up behind his head and he's looking and he looks so pleased with what he's done. Only in Hollywood would the crypts be made out to be the victims. Only in Hollywood. So the film establishes the moral degeneracy of Derek and, and you know, the skinhead neo-Nazi movement and the poor Crips. I mean, you know, they're breaking into somebody's truck. They don't deserve to be shot. I mean, it's just terrible stuff. Anyway, so what it, the, the, the movie consists of the racial rehabilitation of these two brothers. So Derek goes to prison, and as I said, he meets Lamont, this wonderfully wonderfully benevolent, kind, black prisoner who got three years, who got six years for the television dropping, which wasn't even his fault. And what did Derek get for killing these poor crips? He got double the sentence. So a white man kills, he gets half, the, sorry, Derek got half the sentence. So a white man kills, not only kills, but he says, come here, open your mouth and put your teeth on the sidewalk and let me, you know, establishing whites as demonic and maniacal and out of control and he only got three years so right there there's the implication of unfairness and injustice anyway eventually Derek has a falling out with the neo-nazi sort of skinhead crowd with whom he's linked in prison he's, he becomes disillusioned with them because they were doing you know some drug dealings with the Hispanic prisoners and he sees it all as a sham so he starts bonding with Lamont and the other black prisoners of course are more tolerant than the white prisoners and they let Derek play basketball with him and he's shown shooting baskets and this sort of racial camaraderie is being established between the skinhead and the benevolent tolerant black prisoners so the white prisoners noticed this and Derek has put himself some distance between himself and the white prisoners. So what are the, what are the other 
white prisoners do to Derek one day in the shower? Derek is cleansing himself, and I would think that would be symbolic, not only of cleansing himself, but cleansing himself of the hatred, the waters falling on his body, and he's, you know, he's got the soap, and he's cleansing himself. There's an allegory here, I, I would suggest. So the white prisoners come along, you know, the big, bad, intolerant bigots, like, how dare you play basketball with the black prisoners? You can't do that. So the black prisoners are tolerant, they let Derek play, but they're going to come along. So they come along and they give him, you know, give him a few shots in the ribs, and then they smash his face into the shower wall, and then they fill in the blank. There's no women around, hint, hint. Anyway, so they do this to him, and then the next scene... Derek is in the medical ward, and his former black teacher, with whom he used to have a very strong rapport, this brilliant black teacher, Mr. Sweeney, who has a couple of PhDs, who's condescended to teach at the high school level, when he could be a university professor. You know, he's seen next to Derek in the medical ward. Can I just read, can I read the dialogue here? I'd like to share it with you. This is from the movie. So they're sitting there in the medical ward, and of course, Derek has had established a very, you know, tight association with the benevolent black prisoner, and the, you know the the villainhood, villainhood, no such word, but there is now, the villain status of the white prisoners has been clearly established. So here we go from benevolent black prisoner to benevolent, caring, philanthropic teacher who despite, you know, knowing Derek's past and Derek's racial, you know, his, his incorrect attitudes and his racism is still willing to try to rehabilitate this lost white soul. And here's the dialogue. It's a classic. This is the principle. Has anything you've done made your life better? Derek breaks down and weeps. No, you gotta help me. Just help me. Get me out of here. So what he does is he puts his moral hands, his moral fate, into the hands of the black teacher. And they like to, you know, the, the weeping and the, you know, what have I done? Oh my God, you know, how could I have been so deceived? Jesus, sorry. I'm going to break out in tears myself. <laughs> anyway, so he gets out of prison, and then the guy is a legend in the sort of neo-Nazi skinhead circles for having blown away these crypts. But he's not with them anymore, but they don't know it. Danny is still part of the, quote, movement. So there's a party the night that Derek is released, and he goes to get Danny out away from the party, and he has some friction with some of the skinheads, and he winds up beating the leader uh, who is played, his name is Cameron. He's played Cameron Alexander, that's the character's name. He's played by Stacy Keach. So then Danny's taken out of the movement. You know, he, Derek then recollects his experiences in prison, and then Danny, you know, winds up leaving the film, sorry, leaving the movement. And so the two white youth who are deceived very badly by a racist father at the dinner table, by the manipulation of the neo-Nazi leader Cameron Alexander. They've rediscovered their humanity. Thank you very much to Lamont, the black prisoner who showed Derek what racial tolerance is all about, and Principal Sweeney, who came to the medical ward and who offered his moral guidance. Now, the two white bigots have been cleansed and they've reconnected with their humanity thanks to the benevolent of, benevolence of the black characters. 
What would we do without them? I mean, we're so bigoted, we're so racist, we're so bad. And if we're going to rediscover ourselves, we need either sensitivity training or we need to interact with, with racial minorities who are going to show us how to be human again. You know, that's what we need. Very similar to the movie White Lies, you've got many of the same elements here. You have uh, Elizabeth Moore, who used to be a, an activist with the pro-white heritage front, which I believe was Toronto-based. Elizabeth Moore is this high school student who has become disillusioned with political correctness. And uh, you see, the movie's called White Lies. It was aired on CBC in March of 98 and August of 99. Elizabeth Moore is given an F grade on her essay. She wrote an essay lamenting the death, uh, it was called Christmas is Dead. And she's been given a failing grade in this essay. And she was given a rough time in an auditorium when she asked a, a question to this anti-racist leader. I've forgotten his name, the character's name, but yeah, Green. Uh, what's his first name? Something Green. His name is? Mendel. <laughs> Mendel, yeah, good name. Anyway, so she asks him a question in this auditorium about uh, this job for which she's applied at a fast food place. And she said that the job required bilingualism. And then she, she said to the, uh, Alan, it's Alan Green, by the way, the name of the anti-racist leader. She said, well, I said I'm bilingual. Then the uh, person at the, the fast food place said, yeah, well, do you speak Mandarin? And right there, she said, well, why should I need to speak Mandarin to flip burgers? And of course, Alan Green said, well, some would say that's a racist statement. <laughs> to the progressive minority coalition, everything's a racist statement if it comes out of a white mouth. Just existing means we're racist to many of these people. Anyway, so <laughs> that sort of cheesed her off. Then she gets her essay back, and she gets an F, even though it was well written. So she's disillusioned. So she connects with NIM, the National Identity Movement, which is really a takeoff on the Heritage Front. And then she connects with NIM, and they become very sycophantic towards her. They start fawning, like, oh my God, what an essay. Oh, geez, you're smart. And everyone is just, oh, wow, that's you, huh? Oh, geez. And I mean, I don't know if it was like that in real life. I don't know if Elizabeth Moore got that kind of you know, reaction, but anyway, it was just like, it was just like the Virgin Mary walking in, you know, like, oh, is that you, the essay, oh my God, oh my, Jesus, oh, oh wow, can I touch you? I, anyway, so, at first they make it look like, um, you know, the group is okay. Um, there's a character, Mrs. K. Anyway, so Mrs. K, who's clearly Ernst Zundel, Lynn Redgrave, they brought in a, a pretty heavy-duty caster, Lynn Redgrave. Um, Tanya Allen was Irina, Irina, who was a sort of takeoff on uh, Elise Haytick, no, sorry, Hattigan. Uh, Jonathan Scarf. I mean, they brought in some heavyweights here, like, whoa, for the CBC, you know. But again, the Progressive Minority Coalition <laughs> placed a lot of emphasis upon uh, stressing the existence of Nazism and skinheadism. I mean, they love these movies. They love talking about Nazism and the Klan and white intolerance and extremism. They can't get enough of it. So in this case, I mean, the progressive actors of Hollywood probably, you know, saw the script and, oh, we just got to do this. So they got this heavyweight cast. Anyway, so she's at, what did they call it again? The K House or the Z? No, it wasn't the Z House. 
the launching pad. There was a name for the house in which Mrs. K resided. And this is where Nim used to meet. Nim used to edit their videos and so on. So while she was there helping them edit a video one day, a bomb came through the window and kaboof. Anyway, the next scene you show one of the NIM activists, I believe it was the leader whose name I can't recall, is lying in bed and she can't figure out why someone would be bombed or persecuted simply for what they believe. So then they tell her, you know, some pretty, in my opinion, some pretty insightful things. If I can just quote it here. At this point, NIM seems reasonable. So what happened is, I'm just going to read this. There's some dialogue. After seeing anti-racist activist Alan Green on TV justifying the bombing while at the hospital bedside of the injured NIM activist, Chabon recollects Green accusing her of being racist in front of her whole school and that she now feels as if she's walking around with a target on her back, which she probably was. In response, one activist says, quote, welcome to the club. In other words, they're trying to draw a connection between the bombing and what Chapman has gone through at school, so she sort of bonds with them. Then, someone else, then she says, what have they got against you? And Arena replies, they don't like what we say. So there's another bonding here. They don't like what Chapman was saying in the essay. They didn't like her question of the auditorium. And they didn't like what Nim was saying. So, again, they're connecting. Then the NIM leader says, that's right, our terrible hate-filled belief that the majority rules, which sounds pretty reasonable to me. My definition of democracy, by the way, is majority rule with minority accommodation. It's not the tail wagging the dog. It's not minority rule and to hell with the majority whenever there's a clash. That's the way I see it. Anyway, they continue. Um, they have to have more against you than that to be bombing you. The NIM, the NIM leader says, no, we're not the first people in history to be persecuted for our ideas. All I'm saying is that this obsession with the rights of the minority is only hurting the rest of us. Arena adds, but cross that politically correct line and bang, you're a sexist or a racist or a Nazi. Once they've labeled you, they're allowed to bomb you. Now that sounds pretty reasonable at that point. It sounds very reasonable, and it's NIM who are made out to be the good guys, but it's not going to last. It's certainly not going to last. Eventually they deconstruct the victimhood of the NIM group. You know, they show one scene on the bus, they're handing out flyers, and there's this belligerent skinhead intimidating the minorities and making noise and so on. And then, our favorite scene. Later on in the film, some of the activists put on a balaclava. They go to a synagogue put on some black gloves. They got some cans of, I don't know, cans of some inflammable substance. There's a cleaner in the synagogue. Suddenly you see a can, an allegory for Zyklon B perhaps, rolling across the floor. And of course, the contents of the can become emptied and then there's an explosion in the synagogue and then they show the cleaner on fire, engulfed in flames. Oh, just sort of rolling and at that point they're not just they don't simply have you know ideas that are politically incorrect the people who say they're against political correctness and are for majority rule and and so on who care about the rights of the majority they might sound reasonable but you know what it leads to that so people who are moderate if they do anything with their ideas or if they become activists, 
it leads to the burning of synagogues necessarily. Well, I mean, I don't recall. Has, has there ever been an explosion at a synagogue before? So where the hell did that come from? So that's my point. I go back to what I said at the beginning of the talk. Much of this is a reflection of what's in their minds rather than what is reality. The last time I spoke here a couple of years ago, the topic was hate. And the point I tried to make was that we should focus not so much on the people who they claim hate, but on what's inside the minds of the people who see hate everywhere. I would recommend a team of psychologists and have a good long hard talk for people who see hate and Nazism and racism absolutely everywhere and who, who, you know, who, who base their existence upon looking for it everywhere and when they find even the slightest trace of it oh good we got a major league pitcher who said something we can put our teeth into so we can make him the heretic of the year and we can go on about attitudes and yeah I mean I think these people when they find such things like John Rocker and that poor anchor woman with CTV Newsnet when they say the wrong things at the wrong time I actually believe they enjoy the, the systematic and the ritualistic reality reaction to people who sort of commit these anecdotal sins. I think they really do enjoy this. I don't think they're upset and I don't think they think, oh my God, this is awful, we got to fight it. I think they rub their hands together and say, oh baby, we can go on about something for a month now. Oh, excellent. Because they want to talk about these things. They want to talk about these things and if they can't find them, they're going to make movies about them and they'll have scenes like, you know, an exploding synagogue with a cleaner rolling down the stairs. In the other movie, American History X at one point, they show a bunch of skinheads who've been given a pep talk by the Derek Vineyard character to go attack a Korean grocer. He's seen giving them a pep talk and, you know, that, that grocer used to belong to, and I've forgotten the name of the, the, the white majority member, he used to own it. Well, now it's owned by a Korean and he's got illegals working in there. They're undercutting wages and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It wasn't that bad a speech. A bit on the radical side, but he made some, I think, some interesting points. So the skinheads go and they attack the grocer, the grocery store. They go in, they put balaclavas on again, and they got baseball bats and kabang! And they get a few of the Hispanic employees and they put them up against the, you know, the checkout counter and they take jars of things and they paste it on their faces. And then the ultimate humiliation, they get some milk. They want to make the person white, so they take some milk and they go like this. So these movies usually have a scene or two, like the synagogue or the, you know, the, 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 uh, the attack or the ambush on the Korean grocery store that really establishes whites as, again, not just the Derek shootings, but you know, collectively in this case, the attacking of a grocery store. They love to portray whites as violent, out of control, maniacal, and so forth. They thrive on this, and they can't get enough of it. And in, the reality is, if there's ever been tension with Asian-owned grocery stores in the United States, it's not been between skinheads and Asian grocery store owners, it's between blacks. I mean, what about the LA riots? They went after Korean-owned grocery stores. So if you're going to make a damn movie about it, why don't you get your groups right? They're pitting us with something we haven't even done. But it doesn't matter to these people. And I can't stress enough that what we're seeing is biased, 
It's polemical. In other words, they're trying to make a particular point. It's not based on objective reality. Much of it is twisted, exaggerated, taken out of context. And the things upon which they emphasize, the things they keep repeating ad nauseum, Holocaust, slavery, aboriginals, the internship of the Japanese. It's like this, this, this juggernaut, this emotional juggernaut coming at us all the time. And they're relentless, as I said earlier. I mean, the, did I mention the movies that are in, uh, they have in the theaters now? The Green Mile with Tom Hanks. They're talking about an Oscar before the damn thing was released. You know Tom Hanks, Mr. Progressive, Mr. You know the Philadelphia Story, that AIDS movie. You know Mr. Hanks. You know the Alan Alda of the 1990s, that pillow-pounding moralist. Remember Alan Alda and Nash, he and Mike Farrell, those progressive characters who, you know, damn, why can't the world be full of justice and goodness and righteousness? Well, Tom Hanks to me is that annoying sort of moralist, you know, who has these roles where he is sort of, you know, the perpetual underdog or, you know, the person who is involved in the struggle for tolerance and so forth. From what I've seen of the ads and the reviews of these movies, it's about this prison guard who starts out, if anyone, has anyone seen it? Who seems to start out as this, again, the quintessential bigot in the south, and he's guarding this black prisoner. I don't even know if you've seen the ads. You see the size of the black prisoner. He must be 300 plus pounds. Anyway, I wouldn't want to offend him to his face. But uh, Tom Hanks, it seems, gradually grows onto the black prisoner. I think discovers he's innocent, though I can't say for certain because I didn't see it. And it reminds me of the Derek character in American History X who warms up to the black prisoner Lamont. You start out as a bigot, but a black person or a minority is going to show you the path towards tolerance and humanity. From what I've seen, though I haven't seen the movie, but from the reviews and the clips, it appears this is the same genre of film, the same process, the same methods. Anyway, there's, there's that. There's the Hurricane Carter film. There's another one, uh, something about cedar and snow or something. They get into the internship of the Japanese. Very good. Anyway, getting back to, I know I'm jumping around a bit here, but getting back to White Lies, eventually Elizabeth, Elizabeth more, uh, Catherine Chapman sees that she's been deceived by this NIM organization and slowly she starts putting distance between herself and the group and she winds up leaving them and going to the side of the anti-racist leader, Alan Green, who gave her a hard time at, at the beginning of the film, but at the end of these films, the anti-racist excuse me, the social justice slash anti-racist side is always right in the end, no matter how wrong they might look at the beginning. They threw a bomb in someone's house, um, but in the end, in the end, you go to that side, because that's the good and it's the moral side. And of course, the real kicker for the Catherine Chapman character, which really you know, got her to renounce Nim, was seeing a Holocaust exhibit. It was when she saw the Holocaust exhibit that was it. I mean, when push comes to shove, if you really want to shake someone, that's the thing you throw at them, you know, to rehabilitate them. So, in the case of the Derek character in American History X, it was the tolerant black prisoners. Well, from my readings and my understanding, when you're white and you go to a prison, uh, you get a little bit more than tolerance from black prisoners. And it isn't too pleasant. So, for a movie to completely twist that 
and make the black prisoners out to be the tolerant ones who are going to racially really rehabilitate you. I mean, I don't know, this doesn't seem to be reality to me. I mean, these people are seemingly able to make these movies with inaccuracies, with, you know, such ludicrous things as that, as skinheads attack in a Korean grocery store and so on. And it's okay, as long as you're fighting the good fight, you're on the side of the social justice cause. But anyway, so she goes to see this exhibit, and that's it, then she, she switches sides, and then she's on the anti-racist side. She has a hard time with the anti-racist, many of whom don't even want to forgive her. And that's another sign here, when you're a, you know, a member of the white majority, when you do mess up, and when you do make a mistake, and you associate with the wrong people, if you think there's gonna, you, you can, you know, utter an act of contrition and be forgiven, you're very sorely mistaken. You're gonna be, you know, there's gonna be a great question mark on you for the rest of your life. Anyway, so those are the two movies. The, I know I was a little bit incoherent, but these are the two movies about which I've written. One of the uh, the reviews is on the Freedom website, and the other one, believe it or not, I've actually finished. I finished the editing last night. When I go home, I'll email it, and I'd like to get it up. So if you can have a look at both reviews, they're rather, rather long. This one is like, uh, like 12 pages, single-spaced. I have a lot of spare time in my hands. Uh, this one is like, like nine pages. What's the address again? It's freedom.org? freedomsite.org and if you go to the you'll find uh, newest files if you can select that uh, you can have a read of these reviews but anyway so just just want to tie up a few ends here again so just just to review what we see reflected in entertainment and in our culture and in our institutions essentially reflects the progressive minority sort of social justice perspective uh, which is not objective truth but which is simply a opinion and an opinion which in my view is a very hateful one which divides society into groups the good versus the bad it's a very intolerant one and to me borders on hatred and I would ask that you look at films such as this and I'm sure you all do but we should be very diligent in looking at them very critically and we should try to notice or be aware of some of the techniques about which I've discussed today uh, that go on some of the unlikelihoods and some of the things which just don't fit and some of the moments of intense hyperbole and, and so on. Um, what to do about it? I think the only thing we can really do in order to try to fight this kind of thing, and I say this every time I speak, which isn't too often, but when I do, is that we have to start fighting the war. The woman you know, who mentioned to me before my talk commenced that we are in a war. We have to start fighting back as a group. We can't do it as individuals. Someone suggested to me earlier that I'm against libertarianism. I'm not against libertarianism per se. In other words, I don't have a problem with individual freedom and lower taxes and less government and so on. But I think there are times when certain things require a group and or collective reaction. And that we can't fight this kind of thing, this cultural war, as atomized individuals. We have to come together as a group. We have to promote group consciousness as, as, as a racial, if not racial slash ethnic group. And we have, to, we have to try to reinstill pride in who we are and our heritage and we have to try to start reaching people. Um, Mark Lemire has done a, an extraordinary job with the website. I'm telling you, this is a clearinghouse 
of uh, you know some of the you know best articles in Canada on the, about the things of, of which I've spoken tonight. Uh, this is uh, to me one of the great heroes in this country for the work he's done. Let's give him a hand. For, uh, I mean, the young man has dedicated a whole lot of time to what he's done, and to me, it has the potential to spark. Uh, a movement to spark a renaissance in European pride that we, you know, so sorely need to fight this cultural war.